Hey, Nora! Hi, Sandy. Whoa. Oh my God. Did you see our exciting news? So many, so many people contacted me to be like, oh my God, was this your exciting news? Did you see BLM's exciting news? Did you see it? Did you see it? Did you see it? <laughs> I, I saw it, yeah. I'm just so very excited about it. Um, and it feels really good. So for those of you who didn't see it, uh, Black Lives Matter Canada has just purchased a building in Toronto that will serve as... Uh, a free to near free space for black organizers and organizations across Canada and beyond um, uh, to organize and to build power and, you know, just to, to be a community center uh, that is owned and operated by black folks. And I am thrilled about it because as someone who's been organizing in this city forever um, and you know, just beyond the politics of space are really, really critical. And the way that space is used and wielded to prevent us from accessing one another, to prevent us from organizing and is in the hands of like a singular class, uh, is a problem for folks. Uh, And I think, I hope that this uh, will help to uh, interrupt a lot of that and help to um, support and nurture new organizations and new organizing and new connections uh, and community building uh, in the city and beyond. Yeah. And tell us a little bit about the street that it's on, because I saw the address and I thought, oh, I know a lot of activism that centers around Cecil Street in Toronto. Yeah, very, very cool that it is where it is. It was very important for us to uh, find a place that would um, really have some important terms of uh, the the legacy. And um, whoa, did we find kind of a unicorn, like that the fact that this popped up at the time that we were looking is um, unreal. So Cecil Street is kind of a hotbed of activist activity. Um, you know, uh, when, uh, for example, the building itself used to be owned by the Communist Party of Canada and was actually firebombed by uh, the the what is suspected to be the KKK or the JDL at some point in the early 80s. Um, and uh, across the street is Steelworkers Hall, which has a long history uh, of labor activism, including the labor lyceum and where I believe Emma Goldman's funeral was held. Um, uh, down the street is where the first trans organization, uh, in Canada first had its first meeting. Um, it is around where Toronto's first black communities congregated and created the first black organizations and churches. It's down the street from a different book list. Uh, it is near to where Marcus Garvey's Toronto office, uh, was. It's like, there's so much history, uh, on that street and around that, that neighborhood. And of course, um, history, uh, that continues into our, our present day. And so I, um, yeah, I think we're, we're joining a pretty cool legacy on that street. 
Yeah. It's kind of a, an amazing thing to watch um, activists be able to get space and, and actually own space so that there's no risk of being evicted or renovicted or whatever, especially as like the price to access space in so many cities in this country uh, are just skyrocketing. Um, that every time I'm in a progressive space where, where like you, you feel that this is a location of events and activism, I'm, I'm thinking of... Uh, I was at to this this really great space in Victoria um, with the retail workers group there, um, and and you just you can just feel it when you walk in. You're like, wow, this is this is disrupting the the, the current real estate markets. And so, if you are uh, involved in activism, uh, I cannot I cannot um, suggest strong enough that you look at getting space and figuring out how to create those more permanent locations for people to gather. And for activism to kind of just organically bloom through through being physically with one another. So that's amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. And yeah, I will say in closing, and this will be a good uh, segue into what our topics will be today, is that I really learned about um, the politics of space and the necessity of um, creating spaces that uh, that nurture um uh, resistance and nurture, uh, radical creation and just being oneself, uh, being freedom to be oneself as a student at the university of Toronto, where there is no real space that, um, that is for all students that, you know, there, there's no students, famously no student center on the university of Toronto campus. Um, and, uh, you know, there is, uh, some people will retort with it, the fact that there is heart house, but I think that it serves a little bit of a different, uh, purpose and tradition, um, in, in it's, it's, uh, uh, what heart house, for those of you who know heart house, what heart house, um, seeks to do. Um, that being said, students for so long at the University of Toronto campus were really trying to create that space. And uh, students, um, especially students who found themselves in the minority uh, there, uh, so uh, uh, black students on campus who were particularly marginalized, um, it, not just in our population, but also in what we were able to study. And, uh, you know, to be relegated to the basement of a building for um, year to year space that would have to be re reapplied for every year. And you had to prove why you were good enough to be a part of that space. It does something to what you are able to do if you are constantly um, trying to convince somebody that you're worth it to be in a space or you're constantly trying to convince somebody that you're not going to do something in the space that they don't want you to do. You're going to be the best version of what they want you to be in order to use that space. And uh, I remember going up to Guelph, uh, University of Guelph, um, and there was something called the C.J. Munford Center. And it was a center that was just for um, racialized students. And I'd never seen something like that before. And it was so cool to just hang out there and the types of books that they were collecting in the space that they were able to have like a little bit of a permanent library in there for students to talk about um, specific ideas. Nothing like that was really possible on the University of Toronto campus, maybe at the Women in Trans Center, but um, not in the same way as at the C.J. Munford Center. And I spent uh, quite a bit of time going up to Guelph and in that space and meeting people who remain dear contacts to this day because of the connections that we were able to make in that space. 
Um, and I really learned through that process how critical that is. But of course, those students didn't own that space either. And it eventually was changed into something else and taken away. And so, you know, again, it's just one of those things where the the permanence of space, you know, I could talk about the transitional year program at the University of Toronto as well, which is was a was a space that was also torn down by the university when it was no longer, um, you know, it was never really valued, but um, uh, was uh, uh, it was decided that that was no longer a priority. Uh, you know, the the permanence of space that uh, marginalized people. Uh, people who are fighting for resistance, uh, people who are trying to uh, coalesce power um, to change our world is so, so critical. And so I could not be more grateful for the for the team that I work with and everything that we did to make this happen. And yeah, we're just going to try to change the world with that. It's It strikes me as um, being perhaps something that's connected to the times that we live in right now where it's not obvious that you would get space. But, you know, many, many, many generations of radical a- activism and organizing in this country have always centered around having some sort of hall, right? Always having some sort of location for events and location for meetings. And that was normal. And it's it's funny that, you know, since the communists were in that building, I assume they left in probably the 1980s or so, right? Uh, the the way that the world has shifted in in our minds is so 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 drastic, and I I feel like it isn't obvious to activists that we should be trying to get our hands on some sort of permanent location to 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 anchor ourselves. And so I'm I'm glad that you folks have done that, and and you obviously um you're you're obviously very well studied on history of of black organizing and organizing general and the necessity of having these of having these locations to have gone out and, and done something so incredible. But I do think that there is a, a generalized lack of appreciation on the left for why we do need physical locations and why those locations are really important. And I know I'm sure as you're listening, you can think of many, many examples of this all you know in all across Canada of those kinds of spaces that still do exist. Um and uh, and just why it's it's so great. So congratulations again. And before we say thanks to folks, my segue to the topic is, you know, a lot of times, Sandy, you you instantly went to your time at U of T to talk about having student space on campus. And, and a lot of times we think of the university as being mm-hmm. um, a public uh, location for access to space. So access to lecture halls or classrooms or whatever. And uh, to Today, we're going to talk mm-hmm. about how there's just a, yet another attack on the public institution, actually several attacks that we're going to talk about on the public institution of universities in Canada. And the reminder, again, that these are not as public as they claim to be, that they are actually very much at the whim of our governments and our governments' um, global, uh, I don't know, what should I say? And our government's aspirations towards creating uh, a new Cold War. <laughs> Maybe I'll just say it like that. <laughs> Ominous. And with that, some gratitude. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this week we have a lot of folks to thank. So um, I want to shout out Justin, Susan, Sarah, Rachel, Boots the House Down, Mama Yes God, Kayla, Emmett, Tyler, Phone Janae, Andrea, Simon, 
and Robin Ho. Thank you so much. And just a reminder, you know, we've just started to run ads on this show. If you don't want to hear the ads, everybody that donates to the pod to the podcast through Patreon gets a clean feed where you don't have to hear the ads. So we invite you to do that. And if you're not sure how to access that feed, just uh, let us uh, know. <laughs> but thank you so much to everybody this week for your for your support. Okay, let's start on the east. Oh, great. It's the sun the sun rises. Let's start where the sun rises. <laughs> Canada's most Canada's most misunderstood time zone. <laughs> let's start Let's start in Newfoundland and Labrador where we heard some pretty devastating news this week. Um Memorial University is increasing tuition fees uh by over a hundred percent now newfoundland and labrador for years and years and years has had one of the is one of the provinces with the lowest uh tuition fees and i believe uh was lower than quebec for some time even um and it was really important for the local community um, and not just the local community, people um, across uh, the Eastern provinces were often traveling to Newfoundland and Labrador because of their um, um, more accessible education uh, and students from all over the world. There's a really healthy international student community uh, in Memorial at Memorial university because of in part because of um, the accessibility of their education. And they are now jumping those tuition fees to over $6,000. What? What? Why, Newfoundland? Why? I mean, um, this is going to do so much damage to who can access a post-secondary education in Newfoundland and Labrador, but also I'm thinking about the timing in which they've decided to do this. We're just coming out of uh, a pretty devastating economic reality for mm, everyone, pretty much everyone, except the billionaires who did really fucking well, go figure. But for everyone else, it's like not been great financial times. And to make this sort of decision uh, at a point where people are struggling um, to have some sort of economic recovery is really, really strange. Because for those people who would have perhaps lost their livelihoods and are looking to find some other um, way of uh, existing or subsisting themselves, uh, this is not it. This makes it very um, difficult for people to uh, really consider a career change if that's something that they need to do at this moment in time. Yeah, I, I don't think it could be understated how important uh, Newfoundland Labrador's system of lower tuition fees has been for the economy there and to attract people to the province. It is it is the biggest advantage that that province has over the rest of Canada. The, the, the lower fees 
like is the best <laughs> in migration strategy that you can come up with in this country. Um, and, and you mentioned, you know, lower even than Quebec. They, the fees are lower than Quebec because um, if you come from outside of Quebec, you have to pay higher fees than Quebec students. You still don't have to pay fees that are the same as other provinces in, in Canada, but it's still higher. And so the Newfoundland Labrador fees were actually lower for anybody in Canada. And you could come from anywhere and you could fall in love with St. John's and you could stay there for the rest of your life. And the the idea that this is the only way forward for the 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 institution to I don't know save its budget and the the finances of the province are so like difficult because they've got all their money in oil revenues and of course they expected oil to to go up for some f- fucking reason I'm not sure why <laughs> they they then look at okay well where can we make some fast money and the fast money is going to be off of the backs of students and I I want to just like. Um, reference how it's being talked about by um, by Memorial's leadership, because Memorial University is the ones kind of like taking the charge on this. And uh, the announcement was made by um, by them, by the administration at Memorial, which is, of course, the university in St. John's. And, and so there's two things that kind of strike me as very interesting in the way that the CBC reported this. The first is the um, this the, the it's not just domestic student fees that are going to be going up. It's obviously also international student fees. And international students uh, play a really, really important role in um, in the university world. I mean, you know, internationalizing research is really important when you bring in perspectives from around the world. Um, and it was also a really uh, uh, important open door way for like Newfoundland and Labrador to be part of the world and can welcome students from all over the world to study within their universities. But um, of course, international students are not being spared uh, from this um, very massive and unacceptable tuition fee increase. And um, so the CBC reports that Kent Decker who is Memorial's VP of Administration and Finance, he actually said that that the fees will remain competitive with universities across Canada, and the new competitive fees are $20,000 annually. Wait, what? <laughs> oh, my yeah, God. Right, because, because international fees are so fucking unbelievably ridiculous in the rest of Canada. And so, like... It's just this like incredibly cynical move at looking at how expensive tuition fees are other like in the rest of Canada and being like, well, $20,000 isn't so bad. It's like it's $20,000. fucking Like, I'm sorry. In Newfoundland, you could probably buy a fucking pretty nice trailer for $20,000. And you're like, oh, this is still competitive for the rest of Canada because in the rest of Canada, the national average sits at $32,000. Um, and then the CBC cites that from Education Minister Tom Osborne rather than looking at the stats, Candana. I suspect that international tuition fees are $32,000 if you include like the highest cost programs, but I don't imagine that is an actual average. <laughs> um, and so that's very interesting. And the second thing that struck me as very interesting is the president of Memorial is a woman named Vivian Timmons. And, and she was at the leadership of... Um, in uh, at the University of Regina uh, during the the late 2000s, and I remember because I was at Ryerson and doing hiring that there was some sort of like unhappiness there, and there's this like mass exodus that like kind of appeared in in the administrative hiring when you're looking at who to hire, and you're like, whoa, there's a lot of folks coming from the University of Regina. What's going on here? Um, so this this woman, um, I mean, I'm not saying that she was the reason that people were leaving the University of Regina. I don't recall um, all the details, although I'm sure some of our listeners will have some of those. So feel free to drop us the story if you want us to tell it next week. But they, but they hire these like hatchet uh, presidents whose job is to just walk in and to do like maximum damage on the 
on what makes a university great. And in the case of Memorial, a lot of that was the lower tuition fees. It's it's just so like unjust and reprehensible when you look at the way that especially the way that they talk about international students. But like what the fuck else would bring someone to the province, guys? Like what? Th- think of it from the perspective of the future of building your next workforce. Why would you force everybody six thousand dollars uh, to be able to get access to the education to build that next workforce? Like, how does this make any sense? Yeah. And I mean, I one thing that's also interesting, our time in the student movement, me and Nora, um, uh, was during a time when Newfoundland and Labrador was, was really um, ruled by the progressive conservative party over there. And they were uh, really intense about wanting to keep tuition low. Um, and this change, this shift is happening right now uh, under a liberal party rule, <laughs> Newfoundland and Labrador, which just goes to show a lot of what we have often said on this show, which is that sometimes you really can't tell the difference between those two <laughs> parties, even with their um, particularities in provincial uh, politics across this country. But it, I think it is worth noting that and worth noting that because it means that, you know, when we when we organize around issues rather than organize uh, specifically for particular parties, um, that's probably always the way to go if you are an activist uh, trying to make a dent on your particular issue. I mean, gosh, look at fucking BC right now. <laughs> so, mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Gosh, this makes me sad, Newfoundland and Labrador. Yeah. Uh, But Newfoundland and Labrador has also always had a very strong student movement. And so, uh, you know, I look forward to seeing what comes out of that. And if you are a student um, in Newfoundland and Labrador and you listen to Sandy and Nora, let us know what you folks are doing and what's happening. And uh, we'll let our listeners know. Yeah. The one last thing I want to mention about this is it's just so textbook. (laughs) They announced these cuts. They also announced that they're cutting the operating budget of Memorial (laughs) at the same fucking time. And they are creating a new grants program. So if anyone has any, is under any illusions of like all of this, like literally just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, because none of these administrators are fucking like at all creative, have any interest in actually helping students like first and foremost. It, like it's just oh the grants will will be a cheaper program so we'll cut sixty eight million dollars out of the tuition fee program we'll cut nine million dollars out of the school's operating budget but we'll we'll subsidize grants at eighteen million dollars and it'll be fine it's like fuck your PR exercise people are smarter than that and if anything the entire university system within within that province should be free because like the only thing that free. is going to get Newfoundland Labrador off of this like absolute obsession it has with uh, with offshore oil which by the way the prices are not ever going to come the fuck back so you got to figure something out is it's going to be free education that's literally the only thing that's the only thing that is going to to drive economic activity within newfoundland labrador and make it stand out from the atlantic provinces um and instead you have these administrators in government that's just like oh fuck it like let's just let's just actually cut let's just cut universities because like we don't need universities we'll just fucking not have them (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> let's just fucking not have 
Oh God. Uh, let that, may that not be the reality. Anyway, here we are. Or a different kind of, you know, uh, anyway, what, whatever. That's the end of that topic. <laughs> um, but we're going to stay in post-secondary education. So there's some news that is breaking as we talk to each other. So tell me what's happening, Nora. Last week on The Current, as everybody knows, I listened to it religiously, there was um, this story of a researcher who um, had had broken lab protocol at one of the national laboratories in Winnipeg, so a laboratory, a scientific laboratory that um, is not re- connected to a university that is actually funded directly by the federal government, um, and that this uh, scientist found her name on a patent um, in China, and that this was a gross violation of uh, Canadian security, lab security within these spaces. And as they were having this conversation about this one scientist, um, and of course, it's like, you know, drumming up war against China was basically the underlying theme of the whole interview. There was this thing that they mentioned at the end of the episode, and I tweeted about it, so folks may have seen it, um, but... I, I didn't the, – the episode was not, like, looking at this, but the journalist mentioned that the federal government was interested in bringing all of the Canadian research universities under the umbrella of the intelligence framework in some way to make sure that there's no secrets and being stolen from fucking Waterloo University, right? And and so I this was just kind of like a last comment on like in, the, in a general interview about something else, because, of course, this is a federal government lab. It's not a university lab. It's a bit different. But scientists often go between these locations, depending on what their research is. This morning, the Globe and Mail and we're recording this on Monday where this is a, a rare Monday morning <laughs> episode uh, record. This morning, the Globe and Mail announced that the federal government has already moved to insist that the federal granting agencies actually have a security risk assessment, I'm going to now quote, and mitigation measures in consultation with national security agencies and federal departments when when approving or considering all grants through NSERC or CFI. Now, this, I mean, if you're listening to this, you're like, I don't get it. I don't care, <laughs> which is fair because this is kind of like a bit of a nerdy <laughs> world. But all scientific research in this country, like, is funded by NSERC and CFI. NSERC are, is the, it's the National Sciences and Research Council of Canada. There's also SHRC. A lot of our, a lot of our listeners probably know about SHRC grants, right, which is the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. So NSERC is the way that scientists at universities get money for their lab. So you work at a university, you get a salary but you don't have money necessarily to pay for students. And so you have to then apply to provincial research grant agencies if there is one, not all provinces have one, uh, or uh, and or to the to the, to NSERC. And the NSERC grants can be lots of different things. They can be bit program based, they can be just um, your basic research based grants and so those are like the three year funded grants that they look at your research program and they say, "Hmm, very nice. We'll give you $30,000 every year and with that money you can pay for a PhD student, you can pay for a, a master student." And then CFI is a larger envelope of funding that that tends to go towards 
capital costs. Uh, NSERC can fund capital costs as well, but but CFI funds capital costs. So if you're uh, the kind of scientist that I live with um, who requires really, really expensive uh, equipment to be able to do the measurements that he takes, um, you apply to CFI every single year and then you don't get it uh, because it just, <laughs> it's like a... <laughs> uh, but they'll, they'll actually pay for uh, laboratory renovations, um, like literal space kinds of things. But these are the one-off capital costs that scientists require. And so universities rely on NSERC and, and CFI and SHRC funding for their research programs to be realized because otherwise it's just the faculty members getting their salary and nothing else. And so the idea that that the federal government is like overnight, right? Like just this morning, they're just announcing it, that there will be a security risk assessment built in to, to NSERC and CFI applications is an, I am shocked. Like I'm not usually shocked, but this seems like an incredible overreach of our security and intelligence uh, establishment into the academic freedom of scientists in this country. The the justification of it being um, the like the fear of this intelligence being stolen is also very <laughs> strange. And then to like blanket put um, this security assessment on everyone. This is surveillance. This is surveillance of the research that anyone uh, is is doing. And I think uh, that that could have some, you know, as we know how uh, CSIS has interacted with particular communities uh, in Canada, that can have some serious consequences uh, with respect to whom they target, whose research is going to be targeted, and why. Like, I don't know, um, given, again, uh, CSIS's operations domestically against people um, who are just trying to live life, um, I don't know that I trust that the uh, justification is solely about uh, stolen scientific work. No, I don't. I don't think so either. Um, and you know, the way that the Globe and Mail reports this is like the United States is doing the same thing, and what they're really worried about is Chinese scientists stealing North American patents. And it's like, what the fuck would this do to stop that from happening? <laughs> Actually, right? The the way there's such um, there's it's so clear that our cultural institutions in this country are just so like ginned up, ready for war with China. That, um, you know, in the report um, from yeah. the CBC last week and, of course, in, in the Globe and Mail, they mentioned Huawei specifically and the Chinese government generally. They, there's just this obsession with Chinese researchers in Canada. And uh, that, that turns into like a couple of different kinds of people. So um, specifically Chinese international students or Chinese doctoral students or visiting research associates. Um, and then, of course, then filters into just general xenophobic anti-Chinese sentiment of Chinese Canadians who are working within um, the scientific community in Canada. And it's, it's, it's ridiculous for a couple of reasons. One, that North America's obsession with patents is, is so destructive. And so a pat the patent process is like, you've come up with some kind of technology, you apply for a patent, that patent uh, might be granted to you, and then you can use that patent to monetize your research. And so you discover, I don't know, you, you discover a fucking new color of fucking bacteria, let's say, and your your color of bacteria is fucking orange. And you want to patent that that bacteria, you can do that. And then anybody that's like using that orange bacteria can be like, 
uh, I'm I'm basically you can say they're stealing my research. I'm I have this patent and they can't use this without paying me money or without whatever the patent kind of suggests. And patents have been in the news lately because of, of course, the the COVID vaccines, right? That we that there was this move that was led by India and South Africa at the World Trade Organization to to stop um, patents from getting in the way from people from other nations to be able to find out how to to manufacture the mRNA vaccines. Um, but on the day to day world of patents, like this is kind of like where scientists clash with like technocrats, where the scientists are like, we're just trying to do scientific research. Like, what the fuck? Like, it's you know, most scientists especially within the academy, are not looking to commercialize their research necessarily. Maybe there's incentives for them to commercialize, but by and large, you're just doing the research, right? But the patent side is like this proprietary kind of, we will um, hold on to whatever the patent is protecting, and this becomes like our economic engine. The thing is, is that if you're in a country that doesn't give a fuck about patents, then... (laughs) like protecting those patents isn't going to do anything, right? So then this becomes like stealing secrets because then it's like, oh, but that patent was protected in in Canada. And now this Chinese scientist is like stealing it and they're not paying us the rights and not protecting the patent. And it's just like, why would China respect our fucking completely ridiculous patent regime? I just don't understand. And then of course it's like, oh, but this is only going to be around things of national security. So um, like different kinds of precious metals, or different kinds of like information around nuclear energy or military or police or all this fucking critical infrastructure, which is just so broad a term that it could be so many different things. And you can just easily imagine like not only the racial profiling uh, that Sandy, you mentioned already, but that these like definitions become very, very broad. And every single like so the government is now paying tons of money so that NSERC and CFI could fucking go through these risk assessments for every single like, it just sounds like we're, like, beefing up the security establishment to go to war. Yeah, it's it's really, really suspect. And I it, it points to, like, a, a really awful trend in that we have these, um, these, like, news stories, these breaking issues that where our governments are making these sorts of decisions with literally zero public input or zero public debate or discourse at all. Like besides the story of the Chinese researchers at, um, uh, at these, at this lab in, in uh, Manitoba, is it? Uh, there, there has been no real, like there has been no discussion, no discourse about um, uh, that on this really important topic that the public should 110% have some sort of domain over. And, you know, this is not um, the only example of this sort of thing happening, but it just points to this uh, really disturbing trend where it kind of feels like um, we've entered this kind of politic where, where, where politics just happens and we watch, uh, with the exception of anything ridiculous like let's debate masks or, you know, let's debate if climate change is real. That is for the domain of the public. But things like, um, are we going to start uh, state-sanctioned surveillance on all of our scientists? Yeah, well, we won't discuss that in the public realm. We'll just make that decision over here. It'll be a snippet in the Globe and Mail on Monday morning, and no one will really talk about it. 
It's so funny that you say it that way. Like, I know about this because I heard it on the radio last week. And just as I came down to record this episode, my partner, who's home today because my kid's sick, stopped me and was like, holy fuck, have you seen this news about NSERC? And I was like, well, I heard the thing on the radio last week. His father sent it to him (laughs) because it's like, red flag, red flag, red flag. My, my partner's literally in this world. Uh, he's, a, he's a researcher in nanotechnology. <laughs> so it's just like, how do you come up with these ideas? Like, how does the liberal government and their fucking bureaucrats come up with these ideas without at all having any discussion with the scientists actually doing the work? It just seems so um, inappropriate, so ridiculous, such a classic liberal way to like manage the fucking fuck out of stuff to just destroy it. And I want to go back to the Globe and Mail article because it says a bunch of really interesting things that I'm that help me kind of see through why this is just like a completely fucking vacant exercise in in boosting our security apparatus. So the, they they reference an article that they wrote in May on the University of Alberta's quote extensive scientific collaboration with China that involves sharing and transferring research and strategically important areas areas such as nanotechnology, biotechnology, and artificial intelligence. Stop right there. So. It is impossible to be a researcher in this country and doing anything in those fields and not have collaboration in in some way in China. China's like the globally emerging leader of scientific research. They've got some of the best universities in the world, and they also have this program that pays for international students to study abroad. Imagine Canada did that. (laughs) Imagine Canada understood the, the, the necessity to fund graduate level research through the student themselves to go to whatever university around the world that they want to. Like it's, you know, you can make it sound nefarious or you can make it sound what it is, which is like a really intelligent way to fund your own and to boost your own uh, country's like research capacity. Um, And so they, the article goes on um, at the bottom and, and it says that, and anyway, as a result of this investigation, um, the government of Alberta has actually banned all four major universities to suspend, quote, the pursuit of new partnerships with individuals or organizations linked to the Chinese government or the ruling Chinese Communist Party, which is like also very suspect. What does that actually mean? Like, pu- like are public universities or universities that are financed by the federal, by the, by the Chinese government considered then connected to the Chinese Communist Party, like in the same way that like Western would be a fucking federal government funded institution, although I mean, that's not exactly how it works. But it's just there's so little information and you're reading this. And if you've got no idea of how this works, you can be like, holy fuck, like China's like really stealing all of our, our information. And then the last kind of piece, which is where they bring in these like intelligence fucking experts explaining why this is all good and normal, is they say, There are rising concerns about Western countries, among Western countries, about China's efforts to scour the world for technology that has both civilian and military value. What Richard Fisher, (laughs) senior fellow on Asian military affairs, imagine that being your fucking uh, title, um, has called a global, quote, intelligence vacuum cleaner. What? That is such a really, it is such a weird way. What, what press conference was directly quoted for that? (laughs) I just, I, I just, I, sorry, I think the, the line in particular about like scouring the globe for technology that will benefit civilians is like, okay, doesn't everybody do that? How dare they? How dare everyone literally do that? (laughs) Sorry, like, and shouldn't they? (laughs) I just, I like, no, you can't have our, um, 
the way that we are going to, I don't know, siphon off water from the sidewalks technology. Like, why wouldn't would <laughs> that? I oh wow, you can really rhetoric is really important out here in in creating enemies, cultural enemies, and that this is full of that. And so this is one of those things where not only do we need good coverage and public debate and so on, but we also need uh, journalists who are going to be sharp enough to like not just parrot out what the government is saying, like, to, to say, sorry, you said what now? Like what, why, <laughs> why would it be bad for a country to scour the globe for technology that benefits civilians? Please explain. <laughs> just explain that to me. Uh, like the military. Sure. I get that. I get that. Why that's a concern. But then can you also explain why Canada does the same thing? <laughs> like, if it's a con- You know what I mean? It's like, come on, come on. <laughs> yeah, and and a lot of this, like I've had my eyes on this intelligence kind of boost um, since not since the NDP announced they were running an intelligence agent to, to, to run for them, but since before then, ooh, um, when uh, <laughs> ooh, um, before then, from when um, when stories started to come out about the global public health intelligence net- network, the GFIN, and Sandy and I talked about this uh, many times on this episode. So this was the agency that was given about just over or just under $2 million, I guess, to have um, experts in machine learning and artificial intelligence and like that spoke many different languages scouring the world to be the world's early warning system for pandemics. And when GFIN was managed, mismanaged into obliteration, which is what happened by the liberals, right? They, they, they kept on changing the department, changing their focus, putting in um, leadership in the department that didn't understand the scientists and the whole thing kind of collapsed just at the moment that we needed it, right? It, it sent out its last warning before the pandemic in, in May 2019. Um, a lot of the analysis when GFIN finally kind of was like first written about in, in, in March and April 2020, which was very little, very few uh, journalists paid attention at all to this uh, before um, Grant Robertson's big expose in July of that year. Um, but but the, the folks that did write about this, specifically Murray Brewster at the CBC, um, but then I think the Canadian press also had someone on this too. They they were looking at GFIN from this perspective and then quoting a military guy, a professor of military love of some kind, um, Wesley Wark, uh, consistently um, denigrating the fact that Canada's intelligence establishment was not doing pandemic surveillance and, and pandemic readiness. And in the early articles about this, it didn't mention the GFIN. And then once people are like, oh, but we have the GFIN, they're like, oh, fuck, OK, well, maybe we'll mention this as well. But they're not intelligence because they're they're it's clandestine. It's 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 scientists doing scientific work to, to look for, um, you know, early signs of a pandemic, regardless of where they are in the world. And so you had this coverage coming and these analysts saying, but, but the GFIN, its its flaw was that it was not an intelligence body. And so since the, the, in, the, in the 15 months that have passed, there has been a massive amount of hiring happening within the Department of National Defense to try and get DND to have intelligence level or to have a, um, public health intelligence gathering capacities and preparedness capacities while the federal um, um, Minister of Health is doing an investigation of what happened at the GFIN, which is housed within the Public Health Agency of Canada. And that's a, that's a lot of details. Um, and all of that is to say, I think it is very fucking bizarre that we would look at global pandemic readiness through the lens of intelligence, because the argument is 
like, well, governments are going to hide this from us. But the GFIN existed assuming governments were going to hide this from us. And they existed assuming that the earliest warning signals would not come from governments, but would come from people purchasing a different specific kind of drug, purchasing a weird uh, material and saying, whoa, there's been a rush on material purchases of this over here. What's going on here? And that's literally how GFIN was able to identify early signs of a pandemic. And they always like it was always in in like earlier than a government was willing to admit that there was a problem. I mean, fuck, our own government took until there was actually deaths in Canada from COVID before they declared us at a highest alert status of whatever the fuck. And so for these guys to say that we need intelligence to be doing this, it places the world into us versus them. And then it places China into this location as the country that through malice or through incompetence allowed this global pandemic to happen. And had we had military intelligence uh, on China, maybe we would have been better prepared rather than looking at it going, no, actually, if we had had the, 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 the early warning system that had been in place for a decade already, looking at the, the activity of people, of people, regardless of where they are in the world, that would have been actually the, the information that we need. But the but, but government, government really wants the excuse to beef up security. And journalists really have been really juicing up this idea that our failure was an intelligence failure and not a scientific failure that was, in, that was actually mismanaged into being a failure by the liberal government. Yeah, it really worries me uh, the way that um, just the rhetoric that's being um, used to discuss China right now uh, with with uh, respect to um, COVID. I mean, there was the blatantly racist stuff, obviously, of uh, Trump, but beyond uh, Trump and, um, you know, uh, folks here like Jason Kenney. But uh, beyond that, there, you know, we talked about this a little bit last week, the the idea that, you know, when when China's numbers are wrong, it's uh, in terms of uh, uh, death counts or who's really sick. It's because they are hiding things from us. They are being uh, nefarious. They're not telling the world and they're putting us all in danger. And that's their our, their fault. But when it's Ontario, you know, uh, undercounting the vet or reporting half uh, double the amount of vaccines that have gone out than actually have because they made a fucking counting error. It's it's just bumbling, oh, silly, bumbling Ontario um, getting it, you know, it's only half as much as we thought, LOL, or when uh, Canada counts half as many deaths as there actually were uh, for or actually are because you know we're the the count is uh, our ability to count as Nora recounted last week uh, is um, <laughs> not that great. Uh, it's it's not nefarious. It's just oh our systems or not even reported, not even discussed. Like we have to be really aware of what role um, how we talk about something plays in what we think about um, you know different people, global situations, relationships. And also we have to ask ourselves what we are being set up for. <laughs> like what, who does it benefit for us to understand uh, China in this way and why? Um, and uh, that makes me really nervous. I mean, as you say, it is a repeat of Cold War politics or perhaps a Cold War that never actually ended, even though, uh, you know, I was taught that it ended in school. But then I look around and I'm like, did it? 
um, but you know that that it does it does uh, seem like um, a, a a you know a doubling down of Cold War politics and why and for whom and what happens next is uh, is a question that is absolutely at the front of my mind. Mm-hmm. 